It was years ago and miles away, but I can still remember the look on his face when I participated online in the church's special family meeting. The church's senior pastor had been accused of sexual misconduct. Evidence was piling up. The church small C and the church big C wanted some answers. I was particularly interested in this story because I had so many points of contact with this church. I had attended conferences there for years. I knew people deeply impacted by their ministry. I knew some of the staff, including some of those who had raised concerns about him. While I didn't have a personal relationship with this pastor, I considered him a mentor. He'd been a formative voice when I was first preparing for ministry, so much so that I had strongly considered working at that church at one time. Heartbroken, I watched the entire meeting from start to finish, praying for discernment and clarity. I watched him vehemently deny all the claims. First, he defended himself. Then he went on the offensive. He charged his accusers with lying and colluding against him. Their accusations should be dismissed. They were, after all, merely disgruntled former employees. I remained open to this man's innocence as long as possible. I didn't want to believe it was true. But eventually, in the weeks and months that unfolded afterwards, victim after victim, witness after witness came forward, all corroborating one another's testimony. Tragically, this celebrity pastor had a shadow side of sexual misconduct. It had started decades ago, but as is often the case, no one wanted to say anything because God was using him so mightily. What would happen to the church and God's work if these allegations came to light? For some, the reticence was deeply personal. They'd become Christians in this church. They felt indebted to this pastor. How could they turn on him? His behavior wasn't that egregious, was it? They sat in silence for a long time until eventually they reached a breaking point, often from seeing others mistreated. I wish I could say that was the last time a high-profile pastor made news for sexual misconduct or embezzling funds or some other kind of abuse of power. But unfortunately, as you know, that's not the case. I'm not going to name specific churches or pastors because I'm not here to highlight their weaknesses. I am praying for healing for each one of those communities and leaders. But I'm telling this story because this is of grave concern, or should be. Pastors or churches making the headlines for these kinds of stories is not good press for Christian churches. People hear these stories, roll their eyes, and say, see, hypocrites. Friends, churches represent Jesus Christ. We are the body of Christ. Bad press for churches is bad press for Jesus, and he doesn't deserve it. But these stories aren't just hurtful to those outside the church. They're harmful to those inside as well, victims to be sure. 
but also witnesses and others within the community who feel confused, dismayed, and betrayed. Unfortunately, these kinds of stories are too common. The details and the type of misconduct differs from sexual to financial to the more sinister and really hard to pin down abuse of power. But they're real nonetheless. I don't have to tell you that. Sadly, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You find your way here, refugees from other churches, and it's clear from your first visit, you've been through some hard things. You're sometimes skittish, hesitant to get too connected here because you just can't handle another painful experience. Sometimes it's the comment you make in the lobby or the questions you raise in the membership seminar. You want reassurance that whatever happened won't happen again. If that has been your experience, I grieve with you. And so does the Lord of the church. If you're here today and that has not been your experience, praise God. I hope you'll listen carefully to this sermon so we can keep it that way. And so that you can serve as a resource for others who may be facing similar situations. And if you're here today and you wouldn't yet identify as a Christian, I invite you to listen as well. Because I think what Jesus has to say here might be of interest. Now, just to be clear, we are not talking about this in response to some incident at a church in the Twin Cities or because there's some secret investigation at City Church. It's because we're nearing the end of a series on Jesus' revolutionary teaching on Matthew chapters 5 through 7, what's often called the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' magnum opus. And the passage, as the passage we're looking at today shows, Jesus includes this in the list of topics that must be addressed. It is that important. So perhaps it should matter to us too. So let's have the conversation. We're not going to pretend this kind of thing doesn't happen as if putting our heads over our ears will make it go away. We're not going to point fingers at others and say, those bad churches and leaders because that's not helpful, and it could just as easily be us. We're going to do what we always do, I hope, take the Bible seriously, look to it for direction and guidance, because I hope by the end of today, you'll see this, there is bad news. Bad apples or corrupt leaders do exist, and they can do a lot of harm. But the good news is that Jesus equips us to accurately diagnose when that is the case so we can prevent further damage. Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew 7, verses 15 to 20. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. 
Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. We're going to first deal with the bad news. Wolves are among us. Then we'll hear the good news. We have a reliable way of identifying them. We'll conclude with looking at two opposing tensions to keep in mind, depending on our own tendency, as we seek to promote safety for all of God's flocks here at City Church and beyond. Are you with me? First, the bad news. Jesus is pretty direct. Watch out for false prophets. By prophets, he means people who claim to speak for God, meaning church leaders, paid or unpaid, including pastors, elders, board members, ministry leaders. And false, pseudos, means lie, deceive. The assumption behind his statement is that false prophets do indeed exist. That's not surprising. What's surprising, perhaps, is how they present they present as harmless, but they're actually quite dangerous. Verse 15, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. Throughout the Bible, the metaphor sheep is used to describe God's people. And the number one predator for sheep in first century Palestine was the wolf. Remember, most animals have some defense system, armor to shield, speed to outrun, claws or fangs to fight back. Not sheep. They're defenseless in the face of a wolf. Or as my husband likes to say, they're meat in a sweater. <laughs> so this false prophet or teacher is not only not a sheep, he's the worst enemy of the sheep. This is maximum threat level. But there's more to Jesus' illustration than, the, than those in an agrarian society would have caught. Like most professions, shepherds had a standard uniform. Just as Greek philosophers wore togas, shepherds wore cloaks made of sheepskin to keep warm. Interestingly, in the Old Testament, those same cloaks also became the garment of choice for prophets. We see an example of this in 1 Kings 19 with the story of Elijah. What's more, there are instances in the Bible of people who claim to be prophets for God and put on the sheepskin cloak, but are actually out to deceive. So when Jesus' listeners hear this description of wolves in sheepskin, it rings true on a lot of levels. It's a powerful image for them in two ways. The false prophet or false teacher is dangerous and deceptive. In fact, they are dangerous precisely because they're deceptive. The image Jesus is painting here is of someone who resembles a sheep, someone who's wearing the right clothes, but they are deceiving everyone. The manner of deception may differ depending on the flock and what they value. But here are a few I've seen at play in the American church. Appearance, good looks can take you far. Wealth irrespective of how they acquired it or how much they hold on to. <laughs> Power or position or education, degrees. Now, I am not saying there is something wrong with any one of those things. I am saying there is something wrong when we give a leader authority in God's church simply because they possess those attributes. 
A great read on this is Caitlin Beatty's book, Celebrities for Jesus, how personas, platforms, and prophets are hurting the church. The epitome of this is the rich, handsome, megachurch pastor of 20,000 congregants across numerous campuses, but smaller churches can unintentionally harbor wolves as well. And that's what makes this situation so dangerous. If the person in our midst was clearly identified a wolf, we'd keep him far from the sheep. But instead, he seems harmless. So the unwary give him what John Stott calls an unsuspecting welcome. His true character is not usually discovered until it's too late and the damage has been done. I don't know about you, but that raises my anxiety level. The main criteria of a false prophet is that they're hard to identify. Into this bleak situation, Jesus gives us some good news. He offers a reliable test for identifying the threat in our midst. Maybe you noticed it when I read the passage earlier. It appears twice in verse 16 and verse 20. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Jesus changes the metaphor here from sheep and wolves to tree and fruit. To show his way is a foolproof method for spotting false teachers. Wolves can conceal themselves in sheep's clothing for a while, but trees can't hide their identities forever. They will eventually bear fruit whether they want to or not. And when they do, it will accurately reveal just what they are. Watch how Jesus does this. He starts with a similar theme. Superficial observation can be misleading, but examining fruit is accurate. William Barclay describes how at the time there was a certain thorn called the buckthorn, which had little black berries that actually closely resembled grapes. There was also a certain type of thistle in Palestine from which a flower bloomed, which when seen at a distance might be mistaken for a fig. Like the wolf in sheep's clothing, Jesus is saying it's easy from a distance to mistake a thorn bush from a grape or a fig from a thistle. But once you get up close and examine it, you can see it for what it is. And once it bears fruit, there is no mistaking it. Apple trees produce apples. If it produces oranges, it's not an apple tree. If the reliable determinant of whether a prophet is true or false is their fruit, then the key question we must ask is, what does Jesus mean by fruit? Let's start with what fruit isn't. The first item to mention that I don't believe is the fruit Jesus is referring to here, is teaching or doctrine. It's common in many denominations to have heresy police designated to listen to pastor sermons, determine whether what they're teaching is sound doctrine. Now, let me be clear. Hopefully you know this. Doctrine matters. <laughs> what pastors preach and teach from the pulpit matters a great deal. That's why we work so hard to study and prepare and do it as faithfully as we can. 
I can point to many passages in the Bible that reference the importance of right teaching. But I don't think that's what Jesus is referencing here. For starters, the key criteria of wolves is that they're hard to spot. But for many astute theologians, either trained in seminary or in strong churches, heretical views are pretty overt. If I started talking about Jesus not being fully human or not being fully divine, many of you would start to be, raise your hand. If someone diverges from historic orthodoxy, there are usually enough people who can spot it. Furthermore, there's the immediate context of these verses, which as you recall, is the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus outlines for us what kingdom living is like. I'm gonna say more about that context in a moment. A second non-fruit that's important to mention is the apparent success of the ministry leader. Sometimes when a leader is facing allegations of misconduct, people internal or external in the organization will say, but look at the results, the effect of the ministry. Look at the numbers in attendance or in our bank account. Look at the people coming to faith. It must not be that bad or God wouldn't be blessing it. Never mind such data points might be attributed to celebrity pastor worship in the case of the former or the sheer grace of God in the case of the latter. It's almost as if Jesus anticipated this response because <laughs> his very next words out of his mouth in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, which we'll look at more next week are, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. <laughs> Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not? prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform any miracles then i will tell them plainly i never knew you away from me you evildoers doesn't sound to me like scintillating preaching or awe-inspiring miracles are admissible evidence of fruit as far as jesus is concerned instead he defined it in verse 21 as the one who does the will of my father so the real fruit Jesus wants us to examine is not teaching or ministry success, but the fruit of our lives. Throughout the Bible, fruit means effect. What is produced in someone's life, how we live, the wake we leave behind us, the track record. It's not shown in one isolated incident or particular event. Like fruit, people's character is grown and revealed over time. So Eugene Peterson translates our verses like this. Be wary of false preachers who smile a lot, dripping with practice sincerity. Chances are they're out to rip you off one way or another. Don't be impressed with charisma. Look for character. Who preachers are is the main thing, not what they say. A genuine leader will never exploit your emotions or your pocketbook. These diseased trees with their bad apples are going to be chopped down and burned. Matthew 7, 15 to 20. I think that gets at the heart much more. In order to discern false teachers, don't listen to what they say. Watch what they do. Watch how they live. 
And given this comes at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, presumably he's defining how they live as everything he's just laid out in the last three chapters. You can look back at those this week. Here's just a cursory look at Matthew chapters 5 to 7. Are they beatitude people, poor in spirit, pure in heart, merciful, hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Are they processing anger in ways that lead to reconciliation and are quick to make amends with a brother or sister? Are they faithful to Jesus' sexual ethic? Are they honest with others even when it means giving a disappointing no? When wronged, do they retaliate in any form? Or do they seek to love their enemy? Are there devotional practices focused on honoring God, not promoting themselves? We could go on and on, but essentially the test of a true prophet is living according to Jesus' way. Or as the Apostle Paul summarizes in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in us is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When you put it that way, I'd prefer someone to just analyze the doctrine in my sermons instead. That would be much less invasive. And here I need to riff for a minute about a false view in our society that is made an insidious way into our churches. We sometimes hear public leaders assert there should be a strong division between the private life and the public life. It goes like this. It's none of your business what I do in my personal life. My personal life doesn't interfere with my professional life. <laughs> Most of us have lived long enough to know that just isn't true. Read the literature on habituation. You lie in your personal life, eventually you're going to lie in your public life too. But beyond not being accurate, there's a theological reason why this division is false. And it's embedded in the concept of community. 1 Corinthians 12, 5, In Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to or is interconnected to the others. Like our physical bodies, the connective tissue between our parts is so intricate. What happens in one part impacts the others. Theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it like this. There is no sin in thought, word, or deed, no matter how personal or secret, that does not inflict injury upon the whole fellowship. We are members of a body, not only when we choose to be, but in our whole existence. In other words, private sin will ultimately impact the entire community. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Now, obviously, we cannot have a standard of perfection for any leader or any human being, for that matter. The role of perfect one has already been cast. Thank you, Jesus. But isolated incidents are very different from patterns of behavior, which grow over time like fruit. Moreover, the concern isn't simply whether or not someone sins, it's how they handle it when they do. So what does all this mean for us? 
How can we apply Jesus' words and watch out for false prophets? We do so, as Devin preached a few weeks ago, by being discerning, not judging or condemning. Jesus addressed this earlier in Matthew 7, 1 to 6. We keep our self-righteousness in check, remove the plank from our eye before seeking to remove the speck in another's, and we do so by examining fruit, protecting the vulnerable sheep in the midst if necessary, removing wolves from power if necessary, but ultimately leaving judgment to God. Matthew 7, 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, whenever Matthew uses that phrase, two things are always true. It's always referencing final judgment and it's always for God to do, not us. It is not ours to determine what happens with someone ultimately. God is the only one who can determine the perfect amount of justice and mercy on someone's life, and I'm going to let him do that. (laughs) But even when we give him that place, there is still a part for us to play. Our part is determined by whichever extreme is more our tendency. And I'm drawing here on Jesus' words to his disciples a few chapters later, Matthew 10, verse 16. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Sound familiar? Therefore, be as shrewd or as wise as snakes and as innocent or harmless as doves. Let us look at these in turn. To the oblivious or the unaware, Jesus says, be as wise as serpents. Be astute, discriminating. I think this is the word most of us in the Western church need to hear today. I say that because this is the counter argument to the countless people who I hear have been influenced by individualistic culture where tolerance is the norm and where none of us wants to address conflict. How many times have you heard people say in response to dysfunction in organizations, who am I to judge? I'm not perfect either. I'm not close enough to the situation to know the details. We're to love, not judge. Church, that's precisely what the wolf wants you to think. In fact, he's counting on it, and he will remind you of that at the right moment. Actually, Jesus is telling us here, it is our job to exercise discernment. Watch out for false prophets. And he's handing us the test kit to identify the source of danger. Look at the fruit of a person's life and the impact it has on their relationships. How does it measure up to Jesus' way of life outlined in the scriptures? Yes, you're going to have to look closely to see whether that thorn bush is a buckthorn or a grape, or whether that bud is a flower or a fig on a thorn bush. But steal your courage, get close enough to the sheepskin to decipher whether it's a sheep or wolf. The health of the flock depends on it. This is a lot harder to do than you might think. Particularly in organizations where abuse of any kind has been present. Fruit can take a long time to grow. 
As a result of the numerous scandals the broader American church has faced in recent years, a number of books have been published that shed light, not just on leaders, but the systems that, albeit unknowingly, can foster harmful cultures. One of those books is Wade Mullen's Something's Not Right, Decoding the Hidden Tactics of Abuse and Freeing Yourself from Its Power. And I want to say, if you have any interest in this topic, or if you're someone who just cares about the health of the universal church, I encourage you to get a copy of this. It's readable, even though the author's an academic. One of the most helpful contributions is pointing out how difficult it can be to get an accurate read on what's going on of some of these cases. He says it's like nailing jello to a wall. It's a great image. Dysfunctional systems feed on confusion and lack of clarity. They try to keep the truth hidden in the dark. Or to draw on a different author an image, power is elusive. It's a shapeshifter. In her book, Dynamic Discernment, Reason, Emotion, and Power in Change Leadership, academic dean of Yale Theological School, Sarah Drummond, says, well-meaning, God-serving institutions do not embrace conversation about power. In fact, many would like to think they do not have any. In its very nature, its chemistry, its physics, power knows that its exposure could lead to its oblivion. Power is like a cockroach. When the lights go on, it skitters out of sight. Which is why Paul urges believers, do not participate in deeds of darkness, but instead expose them, for all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. If you need permission to speak, Jesus gives it to you. If you need permission to ask questions, you have it. If something's not right in whatever context you're in, raise your hand, shine the light on whatever is unclear or hidden or murky. If there's no validity to what you're bringing, that'll be cleared up quickly. If, however, the truth is elusive or there's resistance to accountability, perhaps that's a warning. The wolf won't like such truth-seeking, but the vulnerable sheep will. That's the word for the oblivious or unaware of us in God's church today. Now, if you're listening and you're feeling like, isn't this going to get out of hand, Amy? Aren't there any controls for this? Once again, Jesus is a step ahead of us. I got to say, as a preacher, he's brilliant. <laughs> Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Talk about a counterbalance. Could there be any two opposite creatures? Some here today need to hear this word instead. To the suspicious or the condemning among us, be harmless as doves. Jesus' admonition, watch out for false teachers, is not meant to induce fear or suspicion in us. He doesn't want us squinting across the room at each other, looking for wolf-like tendencies. He doesn't intend for us to become a breeding ground for legalism. He doesn't want us splitting hairs over how devout somebody is or isn't. Friends, we are too permissive and lenient of some sins and behaviors and too legalistic about others. God give us wisdom to know the difference. 
Again, God knows us well and gives us lots of checks and balances in the Bible to prevent from misapplying the fruit test. <laughs> Here's just a few. Ensuring our motivation is for the good of the other person. Ensuring we have the right spirit and we check all self-righteousness at the door. Ensuring we have the right process, that any accusation is brought by two or three witnesses, and that everything we do is submissive to the law of love. <laughs> How can we possibly hold both these tensions, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves? In the same way our harm is impacted by our connectedness to one another, so is our health. Remember these words Jesus first uttered were not to an individual. They were to a community of brothers and sisters united in him. We need one another in order to live out Jesus' urging. So, to the church, and here I mean big C, though ourselves included, there's no use pretending wolves don't exist. Instead of ignoring them or wondering if we should say something, isn't it about time we identify them so they can stop harming valuable, defenseless, vulnerable sheep? Yes, wolves are responsible for their own actions and God will hold them to account, but we are not entirely at their mercy. Jesus empowers us with a reliable method of discerning, though it requires courage and humility and wisdom, and patience. Jesus equips us because he's invested in his flock. As First Peter says, he's the chief shepherd. Anybody under him is just an under shepherd. Because as John 10 says, he's the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. This is his church and because he promises his disciples, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, regardless of how many wolves try. Let's pray. Oh, great shepherd of the sheep. We need you, Holy Spirit. There is lots of room here for you to work. You are the guide. <laughs> You're the counselor. Counsel us. When do we need to stop being suspicious? And when do we need to stop being silent and speak up? Give us courage. for our sake and for the sake that others may come to know you as the good shepherd as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.